you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter number 5, we'll be covering verses 7 through 21, Lord willing, this morning. A great passage of Scripture, we'll see through the chapter number 5 that there's actually three kind of therefore paragraphs within this chapter, and we'll be covering the second and third of these therefore paragraphs, and uh, I'm looking forward to what the Lord will teach us from His Word this morning. Title of the message is simply, A Light in the Darkness, A Light in the Darkness. As Andy uh, did a good job of introing our text this morning, we absolutely will be discovering, investigating, and considering our identity uh, as lights in this world. And so uh, let's go ahead and quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, and open uh, our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God that we just proclaimed. We acknowledge just the finiteness of our existence, that we are but dust, just simply lumps of clay in your hand. I pray this morning that we would Submit our will, our way, our lives to you, Father. That as we look into your word and we consider our way, we consider our lives, we consider our standing before you, that we would be stirred to consider, to look inward. But also, Father, to look upward, acknowledging that we need you to do a work in our lives this morning. As Andy prayed even earlier, we know that oftentimes we bring baggage and and trouble, a downhearted spirit into worship. The cares of this world often entangle our hearts and our minds and our attention is arrested by other things than your word. And I pray that right now you would quiet all that noise and that your spirit would prepare us to hear your word. That as we desire as elders to faithfully teach and to preach and to equip the church to do the work of the ministry, I pray that even as hearers this morning gathered together, that we would be attentive, that we would lean into the message that you would have for us this morning. Father, we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. A light in the darkness. I can remember vividly when I was just a young boy. Um, I don't know exactly how old I was, but uh, my folks decided to take one of those famous road trip vacations, you know, the ones that every, every little kid looks forward to, and uh, really to, to no particular exciting destination. It wasn't Disney. It, it wasn't Six Flags. It wasn't to some great uh, icon of a baseball stadium or anything like that. It was simply just a road trip with the family and the old Ford Aerostar minivan, right? And so we, we take off and a lot of different places that we could go, right? And I know you're on edge wondering where this was, and it was to the great state of Arkansas, right? Of all places. And I'm sure I didn't do a lot of research looking back on where it was or some cave. Does anybody know what that would have been in Arkansas? Some series of caves? 
No, see, that's how, that's how well-known of a trip this was, right? We went to Arkansas, and, we, and we, we went down into this cave, and I can vividly remember this tour guide taking us down into this cave, giving us all the stats of how deep we were, how below the surface we were, and ultimately all the bats and the wildlife that, that were down in this cave. And then ultimately he talked about this topic of, of darkness. And as a kid, you know something about darkness, right? I mean, we all remember as a kid fearfully laying in our bed, thinking that in, in, in the darkness of our room that there was some horrible monster in our bed that was going to reach out and grab us, right? You've been there. You can remember as a kid, I literally, I, I promise you, I could have been a world record long jumper into my bed as a kid, right? As long as I could, I'm sure it was 10 plus feet. I was diving into my bed because I was afraid of that, that dark space under my bed, that there was danger there. But down, I was, down in this cave, and I can remember having those feelings of being afraid of the dark and putting on my closet light and crying out for mom and dad that, hey, I'm scared. But then I really didn't know anything about darkness until that moment that that tour guide did what? He turned off the lights in this cave. Right? And you can remember as a kid, it was dark and it was scary and your imagination is going wild, but you can still see what? You can still see your hand. You can see the images. You can see shadows. But man, I'm telling you, when we were down in this cave, I literally could see nothing. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I couldn't see my mom or dad. I couldn't see the image of that tour guide that was just a few feet in front of me. I could see nothing. It was pure and utter, what, darkness. And Paul, in our passage this morning, uses this term of darkness, and he contrasts that darkness against light. And just as we know what true darkness is, I'm sure we have seen in its purest form true light, this blinding, pure light that you literally can't even look at because it is so bright. We have this contrast this morning in chapter 5 of darkness and light. I hope as we continue to work our way through this book of Ephesians, I hope that you're doing some work in your heart and in your life and considering your family and considering your relationship to God and to others. Have you, ask yourself this morning, have you just gone through the motions of sitting here on a Sunday morning and receiving another text, another message? Or have, have you been blessed? Have you been challenged? Have you learned something about yourself? Have you learned something about your nature? Have you learned something about the weakness of your flesh, the finiteness of your mind? Have you learned something about your God, about His grace? Have you learned something about the gospel, afresh and anew, as we've gone through this series in the book of Ephesians? Friends, we're all coming to an end here as we finish out chapter number five over the next couple weeks. As Dave finishes out chapter number six, Paul is going to start again bringing together all the context, all the ground that he has covered, everything that we know about ourselves, everything that we know about a good God that sent Jesus Christ to make us alive, everything we know about that gospel that we have been grafted into that family, everything that we know about the church, the body of Christ that he has gifted us to get through this life that can be so difficult many times. It's all coming to a head here in these next few passages of Scripture. And so that's my challenge, that we would lean in, that we would finish 
this series well for the glory of God and that we would be changed as a result of it. So do you believe this morning that the Word is alive? The Word of God is alive. It is quick, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is ready and willing and able to change your life this morning. Do we really believe that? That's That's why we're here. We're here to be changed, to know more about Jesus Christ. And the Word of God is the vehicle that that the Spirit uses, that God uses to do that changing work in our life. No matter where you find yourself at today, no matter how close you might be to God or how far away you might be to God, from God, He wants to do something in your life this morning. He wants to use His Word to do that work. The Word is alive. Why? Because the Word is what? It is Jesus I do remember John chapter number one recently, right? In the beginning was the what? The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. This is who God is. It is the Word. And so as we look into these life-giving Scriptures, they are alive. Why? Because it is the Spirit of Christ Himself on the pages of these Scriptures that wants to change us to be more like Himself. So friends, I don't know if you were prepared or excited or looking forward to doing that, but that is the work that Christ wants to do this morning. He wants to change us to be more like himself because the word is life. As Andy indicated, we have struggles and difficulties. Maybe you came in this morning down. Maybe you find yourself horribly discouraged, defeated, Have you been there before? You came because that's what we do. You sat in these horribly discomfortable, uncomfortable, not discomfortable, uncomfortable blue chairs. You checked the box, but yet your heart was heavy. My prayer this morning is that God would do a work. We don't always tee up a sermon like this, but my heart is heavy because we've gone through a lot of content, a lot of heavy content. And, and my challenge to us is, again, that we would, we would come to this Scripture this morning with a heart that is humble and willing to understand who we are as believers. And I want to challenge and confront our idea of what it looks like to be a Christian. Because, friends, I believe as we look at this Scripture, we're going to find that there is some things that are... Um, in contradiction to what God's Word says about a follower of Christ and how we live that out in our American brand of Christianity. All right, so the text this morning, here's our big idea. Because of who we are in Christ, we should fully embrace our new identity and our new purpose as light in the midst of darkness. Again, that big idea is this. Because of who we are in Christ, We should fully embrace our new identity and new purpose as light in the midst of darkness. Let's start reading in verse number seven. We're going to read down through verse number 21. Follow with me as I read. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead what? Expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This morning we'll look at two timeless principles of walking as children of light that again are directly tied to Paul's opening commands to do what? Imitate God and walk in love. So I've actually, uh, I guess this will be in true form. I've actually got two outlines this morning. We have two timeless principles and then we're going to have three focus areas of application that these timeless principles are going to be lived out in, okay? So here in verse number seven, Paul now will turn his attention away from the negative sins to avoid that we just went through over the last couple weeks to now the positive outworking of how we as believers should relate to this world that we live in. The believer will encounter ungodly behavior in this world. The question is, how do we react? How do we respond? How do we relate to that ungodliness that is exposed either in our life or in the life of, of others? So Paul, again, gives us these three areas of focus that we'll seek out to live out. These focus areas are this. He'll mention partnership. He'll, he'll mention our demeanor to the world. And he also will mention stewardship as we live out these two timeless principles. So first point this morning is this, as children of light, we are to be distinct and separate, but not isolated and absent from the world. Let me say that one more time. The first timeless principle that we'll look at this morning from Ephesians 5, verses 7 through 21 is this, as children of light, we are to be distinct and separate, but not isolated and absent from the darkness. So let's look at this first focus area as we dive into that first point. Paul addresses first this idea of partnership. Let's look at verse number seven again. What does Paul say? Therefore, do not become partners with them. Who's the them? Last phrase of verse number six is what? Who's the them? Sons of disobedience, right? So we have the sons of disobedience. Paul says, do not partner with them. Why? Why should we not partner with the sons of disobedience? What did we learn last week? There's two horrible warnings that Paul 
Shouts from the rooftops about the sons of disobedience who habitually practice these categorical sins that we went through. What's the first warning that Paul gave? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the second warning? These sons of disobedience, the wrath of God is coming towards them. So don't partner with individuals that the wrath of God is coming and that those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's kind of a a common sense connection there, right? Paul says, don't partner with them. But what what is Paul really getting at when he talks about partnership? When he says, do not partner with these sons of disobedience. I think we can look at another of Paul's letters to the church of Corinth to potentially clarify what Paul has in mind here. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Paul then is not advocating for Christ followers to abandon the world and stick our head in the sand in fear of the world. Again, what's our first timeless principle? As children of light, we are to be distinct and separate, but not isolated and absent from the darkness. The world is not something to avoid. Ungodliness is. The world is not something to avoid or to shelter ourselves from. Ungodliness is. In our hyper applications of separation, we have abandoned our very existence in the world, in our identity in the world, to be what? Lights that do what? That shine. You see, friends, we are not to run from the world. We are to run to it, just as our Savior Jesus Christ did. In fact, to take that a step further, we have been given a God-ordained mission to be in the world, but not of it. This is supported by Jesus himself in John chapter number 17, verses 14 through 19, where Christ says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not speak, excuse me, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth truth. So Paul does not say, isolate yourself in some type of a spiritual doomsday bunker. Right? Did you just get the the visual there? Did you just get the mental picture of what it looks like to be in a spiritual doomsday bunker? The preppers, those that are maybe just taking things a little too far, right? What do they do from the world? They put completely pull away. They isolate themselves from everyday society, from their impact in society. They've created their own little definition of what it looks like to live in this world. And it is alone. And it is irrelevant. And it has no lasting impact or legacy. The same sense we often fall into this trap spiritually. Or we think that somehow we are 
creating this subculture of Christianity. We're isolating ourselves from the world because that's what separation looks like, friends. It is not. Christ this morning is calling us, if we've gone down that road, to come up out of our doomsday bunker and to engage the world and to shine as as lights. What does Paul say? What is his warning? Paul says, we do not partner with these sons of disobedience. So what exactly does Paul mean here by partnership? Here, verse number seven, Paul actually uses the same term in chapter number three, verse number six. Turn with me back just a couple pages, or I guess it would probably be one in most Bibles, right? Chapter number three, verse number six, Paul says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here, the same word in the Greek is translated as what? Partakers. So we have partners and partakers to remind his readers what? In this chapter 3 context, that they are co-participants with the Jewish believers. They are part of this new community in Christ. There is no the separation of Jew and Gentile, but we are all now what? One in Christ. We are partakers. We are co-participants. So Paul, over in chapter number five then, is saying, do not be co-participants with the sons of disobedience and these aforementioned sins in our previous verses. Friends, this stands in stark contrast to Paul's desire for us to do what? Again, in verses one and two, to imitate God. And to walk in love, friends, we cannot live out those two things if we are isolating ourselves from the world. We can never accomplish, we can never achieve our full potential in our true identity as lights if we're shining alone. The whole point of light is to expose the darkness. It's who we are. And in order to shine in our true potential identity, we have to be engaged in the darkness of the world. So Paul mentioned this first idea of partnership. Paul then goes on to the second focus point, which is our demeanor. So Paul says what? Don't forget who you were before Christ. Look with me in verse number seven again. He says, What, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were what? Darkness. You, his readers. Paul, all those that were sitting around, you and me, we all were once what? Darkness. I love that Paul constructs his statement here in verse number eight the way that he does. I think there's some great nuances here as we consider why Paul structured his statement the way he did. Paul could have said a lot of different things. He, said, he could have said, at one time you practiced darkness, at one time you pursued darkness, at one time you engaged in darkness, but Paul says what? At one time you were darkness. You were darkness. It was your nature. It was your identity. It's who you were. You were Darkness in your mind, in your heart, in your desires, in your relationships. It was all darkness. Our very nature, 
at our core, without Christ, is darkness. Friends, this speaks to the importance of us having a proper and biblical understanding of our depravity. Our depravity. And that our depravity is total. We believe in a total depravity. We don't have a spark of enlightenment. We don't have a, hey, you know what, I'm just kind of a good person, a good guy, a good gal. You know, kind of do some good things. No, without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are totally depraved in our nature, in our being, and in our mind. Do we remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of who? Disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we are mindful of where we came from. But are we also mindful of our current standing in Christ? Let's look at verse number eight again. For at, one, for at one time you were darkness, but don't we love that conjunction in the book of Ephesians? But now you are light. But now you are light, how? In the Lord. So Paul says, based on this radical transformation, this new birth, the casting off of the old, the putting on of the new in Christ, Paul says, because of that, we walk as children of light. So we once were darkness. We now are light in the Lord. And so Paul says, because of that change, because of that transformation, what should we do? We should walk as children of light. Paul says, act like who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Believe who you are in Christ. Embrace who you are in Christ. You are chosen. You are beloved. You have been given an inheritance in Christ. All these beautiful truths that we went through chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is anchoring them together with now what the outworking of our lifestyle, our conduct, and our walk, and our purpose in this world. How do we know if we're doing this? Walk as children of light. That seems kind of like an ambiguous term, doesn't it? Sounds like a very spiritual thing to say, something that the Bible should say and that we as preachers should preach, but what, how do we do that? And how do we know what that looks like? How do I walk as a children of child of light? Excuse me. Paul says, let's read on. Verse number nine. And to verse eight, walk as children of light. Verse nine, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and what? Good, true. So Paul says we know that we are walking as children of light because there will be what? There will be fruit. There will be an evidence of this inward change that results in outward actions and behavior and conduct. Understand our new identity in Christ and it will show 
in how we relate to others and ultimately how we relate to God in this world. There'll be fruit. And he uses these, summarizes it in these three words, good, right, and true. We know Paul expands on that idea in Galatians 5. Paul says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Some of those things sound familiar that we covered in Ephesians? Absolutely. Paul says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit in contrast, is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Are you thankful this morning for a crucified flesh? That Jesus took your old man to the cross. He paid the price And that we can now bear fruit for his glory in our lives because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We are light. Walk as light. Why are we light? Maybe more importantly, how are we light? Going back to John chapter number one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we are light. Why? Because Jesus is light. Jesus has come to save us. And because of Jesus, we now can be in relationship with God. And so because we are in Christ and Christ is light, we are with Christ. So therefore, we are light. That is our new identity. So based on our new identity as light, Paul tells us that we should do two things in this passage. Verse number 10, and try to what discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We should be a discerning people that are sincerely desiring to know what pleases the Lord. Why? Because in our new identity, our goal, our desire, our mission, our purpose, our role is to what? Imitate God and to walk in love. Therefore, we need to be discerning. We need to be aware of our surroundings, aware of the ungodliness in the world, aware of spiritual warfare that David is absolutely going to hammer in chapter number six. We need to be discerning. Are we discerning people? We're cautious and aware of the influences that are coming into our eyes, that are going into our mind, that are influencing our heart, that as a result are are influencing our speech and our relationships. Are we discerning people to be aware of the influences of the world that are coming in through entertainment, through music, through movies, all the things that we engage in this world? Paul says, be a discerning people and ask yourself this question, does it please the Lord? Is this not the ultimate filter, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what? To the glory of God. 
Do we think that way? Do we operate that way? Do we relate to each other in that manner? Are we willing to call each other out and say, hey, does that please the Lord? I've got a question. Let's talk about it. So last time you had a conversation with somebody in, in that regard. Are we a discerning people? What does it mean to discern? One time I heard an illustration of uh, a wartime mindset. This wartime mindset is something that obviously I've, I've never experienced, but this individual that described it mentioned the, the heightened sense of urgency that your, your senses, right, your, your, your hearing and your smell and, and everything about you is everything is raised up a little bit higher. So every snap of a twig, every rustle of the leaves, in this wartime mentality, you're mindful that there could be what? Danger. And that as a result, you're going to, you're gonna, you're gonna go investigate that and to be sure that there's nothing, that roaring lion's not prowling, just on the other side, ready to pounce on you and to devour you and your family, that that thief isn't, isn't laying in wait at night, ready to steal, kill, and destroy Rather, but, but we are discerning people. We have a heightened sense of awareness, understanding that we are in spiritual warfare and there is eternity at stake. Secondly, not only should we be a discerning people, but Paul says that we should expose the unfruitful works of darkness for what they are. They are what? They're shameful. Verse number 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse number 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead what? Expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So I want to be clear here. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. My sin as a believer is just as appalling and putrid and disgusting to the Lord as the sin of an unbeliever is. Right? Do we get that? My, my sin is, is just as horrible as a believer, a beloved child of God, as the sin of an unbeliever is. So I, I want to I address this topic of our demeanor, again, to, to the world. Our demeanor, our disposition, our attitude, our posture in the world should not be that of looking down upon or judgmental or casting of stones like the Pharisees did in their day. But rather, we should reach out a hand in love and grace just as Christ did. Friends, it's not cliche to say that Christ dined with publican and sinners because he did. Because he loved the world, and because he was looked out in the multitudes and he was moved with what? Compassion, not disgust and anger. So friends, our demeanor, our disposition to the law should be understanding that we once were what? Darkness. That's what Paul is teeing this up on. Be mindful of our standing before the Lord. It was nothing of ourselves, but his grace that changed my identity from darkness to light. And so as we engage in this world and we operate in our function as light to expose darkness, we do it in grace 
and we do it in love. We do it offering the good news that there is hope and that Jesus saves. Not to condemn more. Not to heap coals of more shame and guilt. Not to point a finger of judgment towards another, but rather to show Christ. To show Christ. Friends, are we living out this call to imitate God and walk in love? Fortunately, many of us, myself included, I believe are lulled to sleep in the conveniences and the comforts of our American brand of Christianity. There are people in our own families that do not know Jesus. There are our neighbors and there are coworkers. There is people that God has sovereignly placed into our life in our family. And the question is, what are we doing about it? We're so entangled with the cares of this world, pursuing the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life, as if eternity is a mystical idea as opposed to an imminent reality. The wrath of God is coming, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means what? Eternity in a real place called hell. Separation from God forever. And friends, it is our mission that Christ has given us to go into the world and to make disciples of, of all nations. You know what our nation is? It's, it's right here. It's in Independence, North Kansas City, in Liberty, in Gladstone, in Lawson, all over the Kansas City metro area where God has placed you and your sphere of influence to shine as lights to be discerning, to consider what pleases the Lord, and to have that conduct and that lifestyle and that walk that exposes darkness for what it is, sin. And that sin has a real penalty. Because God is holy and just, He cannot have fellowship with this sin. Therefore, Christ has come. The gift of salvation is available to all who will place their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So eternity is not a mystical idea. It is an imminent reality. So Paul must have been feeling this as well as feeling a little angst maybe with this church at Ephesus because what does he say? Verse number 14, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love this. Awake. You've been lulled asleep. Eternity is here. And we have been given the good news that Jesus saves and we're doing nothing about it. Friends, this is our third focus area. This is a stewardship problem. Being horrible stewards of the gospel, the greatest news in the history of mankind, and we're squandering it away because of the cares of this world. So Paul urges his readers to awake from their slumber, to awake from their sleep, and arise, to get into action, to get into the game, to get off the bench, and to consider your identity in Christ as a what? A light. Christ will shine on you. This is an interesting quote. To be honest with you, they're not really 100% sure where this quote is coming from. It's not a direct quotation from any particular Old Testament text. There's a lot of speculation on 
uh, an extra biblical idea that Paul might have had or some other uh, series of writings that Paul may have pulled this from. There's a number of different verses that other theologians speculate that this quotation could have come from. Um, my favorite speculation, of course, because again, we don't know exactly, is Isaiah 60, verse 1. The prophet said, What arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Friends, the call is clear for us to wake. Our call is to awake and to arise and to get into action. The first principle we looked at this morning is that we are to be distinct and separate, but not absent and isolated. Secondly, as children of light, we are to walk carefully in a manner that would maximize the glory of God in our lives. As children of light, we are to walk carefully and in a manner that would maximize the glory of God in our life. Paul gives us, again, Three contrasting ideas here through verses 15 through 21. He tells us, don't be unwise, but rather be what? Wise. He says, don't be foolish, but rather understand. He says, thirdly, don't get drunk, but rather be filled with the Spirit. These three contrasting ideas all bring home this third focus area of stewardship. Let's kick off this section with jumping into the end of verse number 16. Follow me there. Verse 16, the end of the verse. That phrase says what? Because the days are, what are the days described as? Evil. The days are described as, as evil. So we're going to kind of reverse engineer the why behind these contrasting ideas, right? So Paul says that the days are evil. So we should do what? Secondly, working our way backwards. Make the best use of our time. What is the best use of our time? Paul says, walking as wise and not unwise. How do we stay on track in this effort? We look or examine our walk. How? He says, carefully. You see that in verse number 16. Let's read it the way we should. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as why is Paul's attempting to what? Raise their sense of awareness, their sense of urgency, their sense of intentionality to walk as lights in this world. Friends, we covered a lot here this morning. We're trying to go as fast as we can. Question for us. Are we walking? Are we living? And are we interacting with others with this idea of stewardship in mind, Paul, or excuse me, Hebrews tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. James 4.14 tells us, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Awake. Awake. How, do, how then do we walk carefully in these final few verses? We, first, we walk with wisdom. We saw that in verses 15 through 16. Secondly, we walk with understanding. Look at me, verse number 17. Paul says, What therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding here is in contrast with the negative 
character trait of foolishness. We could spend a lot of time here. We could trace this all the way through the, through the book of, of Proverbs, uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the contrast of the wise and the fool. It is, it is all over the place. One of my favorites is Proverbs 10.23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Have you ever observed when others view what is wrong as a joke? Lightheartedness, don't understand really the weight and the heaviness of that action or that activity. Paul is reminding his readers that a relationship with God is not a one-time thing, but rather we should be in continual pursuit of knowing. Knowing what? What does God say here? What does Paul say? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's always one of those lofty, kind of ambiguous statements as well, isn't it, in Scripture? The will of the Lord. Wow, can I, can I really know what the will of the Lord is? Kind of view this phrase, the will of the Lord, as, again, some magical, mystical thing to somehow hopeful one day that we can figure out or attain to it. Friends, we don't need to go on some mountaintop spiritual retreat or have some spiritual experience to know what God's will is. Why? Because we have, that's exactly right, the Word of God. We know what the will of the Lord is because He has revealed it in His Word. God has clearly and plainly revealed himself in Scripture through the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's why 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Ecclesiastes 12 has something to say about the will of the Lord. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Friends, certainly there's counsel, there's prayer, and there is direction in certain situations in life. But we've been given everything we need to navigate the uncertainty of the will of God. And to have clear, 100% surety that, that we can know the will of the Lord through His Word. Paul is reminding his readers that God has made known His will. And we as believers should be exhorted to what? Know it. Paul is reminding them that God expects His people to be diligent in discovering what He has already revealed to them. His will in the Word of God. So we're to walk with wisdom, we're to walk with understanding, and finally we're to walk with spirit as spirit-filled lives. To walk with spirit-filled lives. Excuse me, we see that in verses 18 through 21. Let's read them. 18. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We know that in this biblical account that drunkenness was a big problem in their day. It's also a big problem in our day. It also, drunkenness also would have been a a core component of the Greco-Roman worship experience and a whole other host of uh, sinful practices were involved in their worship experiences in that Roman culture. Paul's concern is that drunkenness would lead to what? Debauchery. That's a great word, isn't it? Not one we use often in, in our language. So what do we know about debauchery? What, is it, what does it mean? The idea here is that this could lead to a behavior which shows a lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. You could say that pretty much sums up um, often what we think about the world, right? If it feels good, do it. If I see it, I like it, I take it. Debauchery and drunkenness can lead to a behavior which shows a lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. This stands again in contrast to what? Discerning. Understanding this please the Lord. And exposing the darkness. So friends, we should not allow ourselves by God's grace to be controlled by anything, substance or otherwise, other than the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul says what? Walk carefully with specifically alcohol. Be always sure that you are filled with the Spirit. Don't allow yourself to progress in your consumption of alcohol to the point where you would cross over into drunkenness. That is not becoming of what? The identity and the role and the nature of a light. So how do we know that we are walking in the Spirit? Paul gives us three categories that help us to understand and to test if we're walking in the Spirit. First of all, we're going to be singing. Now, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't necessarily just walk around all the time just singing, and many people are thankful for that, right? Um, we may have, as guys, we may just have this perception that, you know, hey, singing's kind of, you know, we'll leave that to the girls, maybe. They kind of enjoy doing that singing thing, and, you know, maybe we're too masculine or cool or whatever for singing. I hope we can dispel that myth that as a believer, as a follower of Christ, He has given us a, a new song in our hearts. And we need to declare through the worship of song, His greatness and His majesty and His worth in our life. So male and female, the test to whether you're walking in the Spirit is a song. To whom? What does Paul say? Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to who? The Lord. Beyond the singing, whether you can hold a, 
a tune or not, is that you need to be categorized as a worshipful individual. God's word tells us to what? Make a joyful noise. I'm thankful for that many times. Sometimes when I'm leading worship and I don't quite get that first note right, I'm thankful that I don't get a grade from God, but rather it's joyful and he sees my heart when I miss a beat or two or a few beats or two on that drum back there that I'm not getting a grade. We want to do that well for the glory of God, but yet he sees my heart. Are you a worshipful individual? That's how we know we are walking in the Spirit. Secondly, Paul says that we'll be thankful. We talked about this last week. We know what thankfulness looks like, our our praise and adoration, acknowledging the work of the Lord in your life and his provision and watchful care over you. Are we thankful? Thankful how often and when? Paul says that we should be thankful always. So we are a worshipful individual at all times. This is the test of whether we're walking in the Spirit. Third, what does Paul say? Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thirdly, we are a humble people. To whom? Who are we to be submitting to and humble to in our disposition? One another. Are you potentially easily offended? Find yourself always have a a bone to pick? Maybe a glass half full in in your viewer perception of how the body of Christ is doing this or doing that? Is your preference and your desires being elevated above those of others in our midst? Paul says, man, if you are walking in the Spirit, you're going to be submitting to one another like you could never imagine. Why? Because that's the example of Christ. We have this example of Christ in Philippians chapter number two, and we'll end with this text. Paul says in that passage, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and one mind, doing nothing doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's submission. That's humility. That's, Father, not my will, but yours. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But, Father, your will be done. He emptied himself and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on earth a cross. Friends, if we live this way, God will be glorified and his glory will be magnified. It will be maximized in and through your individual life and collectively as a body of Christ at Liberty Hills Bible Church, God will get the glory in and through our lives.
And we will be a people that truly imitate God and walk in love. And there will be a positive collateral impact to those around us as fellow covenant members here at Liberty Hills Bible Church and to those that God has placed in our sphere of influence to go and make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. Friends, a light in the darkness. This is what God's word has for us this morning. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, your word. So much here. I pray that your spirit would now take your word you would plant it deep in the hearts of our lives and that it would take root, it would grow, and it would bear fruit that would remain for your glory. Father, I claim the promise right now that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it will accomplish the thing that you would have it to do. I pray that you would do that, Father. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.